With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. My last thing that I tell the kids is, understand something. I am rooting for you, but I will not hesitate to annihilate you if you try to go up against me. I'm not your friend. I'm somebody who's friendly and doesn't wish harm upon you nor bad things upon you. But I don't wish your success at the expense of my demise. You try that, I'm going to take you out. Welcome to the Jim Rohn Podcast. This is episode 46, and man, it is awesome to be back after a couple of weeks off, and we are going to come out of the gate swinging with my guest for the pod, Stephen A. Smith. Stephen A. is the longtime co-host of First Take. He is the host of the Stephen A. Smith Show. He is on SportsCenter. He is on NBA Countdown. He is a man that you see every day across the entire ESPN platform. In short, he is the face of that network and somebody I go way, way back with. Now, it's been more than a minute since I've caught up with Stephen A., and as a couple of guys who have been in this business a long time, it was awesome to chop it up and to get caught up with him. Stephen A. is a guy at the top of his game, but he has never forgotten the road that he's had to travel to get there, and we covered a lot of ground in a conversation that I know you're going to enjoy. Pot up, Ep46 gets rolling right after this word from my pals at dollarshaveclub.com. Listen up. If you ever shower or brush your teeth or try to make your hair look presentable, essentially every last one of you, I've got really good news for you. Dollar Shave Club has got a lot of stuff to help you out. Dollar Shave Club delivers everything you need to look, feel, and smell your best. Literally everything in my bathroom is from Dollar Shave Club. They have everything you need, way more than just razors. It's like this, Dollar Shave Club. Yes, that Dollar Shave Club delivers everything you need to look, feel, and smell your best. You name it, shampoo, conditioner, body wash, toothpaste, hair gel, and even a wipe to make your backside feel amazing. And here's a great way to try a bunch of Dollar Shave Club's products. For only five bucks, you can get their daily essential starter set. It comes with body cleanser, one wipe Charlie's, which is their amazing buttocks wipes, their world-famous shave butter, and their best razor, the Six Blade Executive. Keep the blades coming for a few more bucks a month. Add in shampoo, toothpaste, and anything else you might need. Check it all out at dollarshaveclub.com slash Rome. Once again, almost anything you need for your bathroom comes right from Dollar Shave Club. That's dollarshaveclub.com slash Rome. Look, the worst part of getting back from the basement is not jet lag or unpacking. It is clearing the freaking tape on this damn voicemail. Now, I'll admit, it's gotten a little bit better of late, but that's not saying much, is it? And I know that some of you only come here for the nonsense on the other side of the play button. And the truth is, I want you here listening to the fire interviews. So, I've got to bait the line, throw it out there, and hope that you're hooked for the conversation coming up next. 
If you want, go right ahead, dial 949-385-0447, 949-385-0447, do it whenever you want, spew whatever you want at the beep. If it's funny enough, strange enough, or even smart enough, somebody other than me might actually hear it. First new message. What's up, Romans, Dr. Dave? Message deleted. Next message. Hey, what's going on, Romy? This is Lieutenant Nim from Phoenix and just want to commend you on a fantastic slamming podcast that has been getting me through these last couple months in training here at nice and humid Fort Jackson, South Carolina. Just want to tell you to keep up the good work. God bless you and yours, brother. Message saved. Next message. Romy Rome. My name's Pete. Saw your Instagram pictures. Did Marty enjoy the trip? Message deleted. Next message. Jim Rome, JV in Idaho here. Hey, man, hope you enjoyed your time down low. While you were, I've been checking out the back catalog of pods. My goodness, pods like Goggins and Clint Malarchuk. They got me keeping my will strong and my shovel sharp, Rome. I thank you for all of that. Keep up the good work. Message saved. Next message. Hey, Jim, this is Mona from Knoxville, Tennessee. I hope you remember me. Thank you for having my back on the smack off and can't wait for you to come back. See ya. Message saved. Next message. Jim, Rome. Rome is burning. What's up, player? This is Aaron in the undisclosed location. Okay, Jim, you're always talking about Sass being undefeated. Well, I kick Sass's ass every day, Jim, because I am a 40-year-old virgin. But my day will come. My day will come. Okay, who's that lady clone? Who's that young filly? What's her name? Lauren? She always calls in hi. I kind of got a thing for Lauren. So, you know, tell her I said what up. Message deleted. Next message. Romy. Nooch. Look, man, Hawk's been dodging me. I didn't want to put this out there, but he owes me 60 bucks. Can't really go into the details right now. War Team Bake. Message deleted. Next message. I just saw your tweet about your horrible 45 minutes of cardio at altitude. Big deal! Think about what the clones are going through for the last two weeks without you. Message saved. Next message. Uh, hey, Mrs. Kepka, this is uh, Tiger. Uh, I'd really appreciate it if uh, you could delete those uh, voicemails that I've left you. Uh, thanks. Message deleted. You have no more messages. So, was that Tiger calling Kepka's lady? I mean, I'm pretty sure Eldrick does not want anything to do with that rocked-up dude who ripped the Wanamaker out of his hands this weekend. Delete that number, cat. As for the rest of you, thanks for hanging in during my vacay, and thank you for checking out the backlog of pod episodes. 46 in, and we're only getting better. Lieutenant Nim, thank you for listening. Thank you for your service. Stay cool in South Carolina. Mona, coming to the voicemail after that absolutely unbelievable smack-off call. Nooch, if you lent Hawk 60 bucks, that's a you problem, not a Hawk problem. Hey, Dr. Dave, still not good enough. Folks, clearly, there is some rust to knock off. I know you can all do better. Do better. 
Hiring is really challenging. I know from experience, but I also know there is one place that you can go where hiring is simple, fast, and smart. A place where growing businesses connect to qualified candidates, and that place is ZipRecruiter.com slash clones. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. As the applications come in, ZipRecruiter analyzes each one and spotlights the top candidates so you never miss a great match. ZipRecruiter is so effective that 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through their site within the very first day. With results like that, it is no wonder that ZipRecruiter is the highest rated hiring site in America. And right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash clones, ZipRecruiter.com slash clones, C-L-O-N-E-S, ZipRecruiter.com slash clones, ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Before Stephen A. Smith was the dude that you see everywhere on ESPN, he was a guy grinding his way up the ladder. He covered high school sports. He covered college hoops. He worked the Sixers beat. He dominated the NBA beat, breaking stories and annihilating his competition. I caught Stephen A. on the way up. I booked him on The Last Word, a show I used to host. He came on JRIB. I liked what he had to say. He made my shows better. We spent a lot of time together. We talked about the business and where we thought it was going, so I was not at all surprised when Stephen A. Smith became Stephen A. Smith. If you're looking for Stephen A. to give you his take on the sports stories of the day, flip on the tube. But if you're looking for Stephen A. to tell the story of how he got where he is and how he plans to stay there and go beyond, then lock it up. You're going to really enjoy this conversation. Now, Stephen, you and I go back. We go way, way back, but it's been a minute or two since you and I have connected. Obviously, we're both busy. We work for competing entities, but when we reached out to you, not only did you say that you would do it, but you said, I'm on vacation, and if you need me, I'll do it right now. It did not come to that, but I appreciated the hell out of it, and I appreciate you doing this, Stephen. How the hell are you? How are you living, my man? How are well, things? For, well, first of all, I'm doing great, and secondly, just for your audience and everybody to know, you might have something to do with that because, after all, when I was a little puppy in this business, high school reporter transitioning to NBA reporter and what have you with the Philadelphia Inquirer and doing some work for uh, Fox, uh, you never, ever hesitated to give me a helping hand. You've always been a friend. You've always reached out. You've always extended yourself for me. I remember when you were hosting The Last Word on Fox and used to do your show, and then afterwards we used to hang out in your office, and I can't count the amount of times you used to sit me in your office and never hesitated to give me uh, some advice. So you've always been a career-long friend. You always will be. And when you called, I had to make sure to reach out to the honchos. Obviously, you know how ESPN operates. But I made sure they knew that this was something that I wanted to do, and I'm happy to be here for you, my man. Well, man, Stephen, I got to say, you really did not have to say that at all, but I really appreciate you, and it's so nice to hear. Let me take you back for a minute. 
to the days that you're talking about. Now, when I first got my first TV show, Talk 2, that was in 1993, and that's when ESPN2 debuted. At that time, Steve and the Print guys hated the electronic guys. I mean, they could not respect radio and TV guys any less than they did, but I kind of turned that thing on its head. I thought the print folk were wired in. I thought they were sourced well. I thought they could provide good insight for the talk shows that I hosted. As long as they weren't complete assholes, I tried to put them on, especially if they were entertaining. Now, you fit that bill perfectly. As a print guy and somebody who worked a beat, what did you think about the electronic media back then, and how did you approach those first TV hits that you did back in the day? Well, it never bothered me uh, because I knew how to distinguish the difference. I mean, when we, you know, I was coming up, I came up later than you. I mean, when you talk about 1993, when you were at ESPN News, I was a high school reporter for the New York Daily News. I was covering high schools for crying out loud. So I was just coming into the business. And, you know, obviously you looked at television and obviously the visual medium, there was more money in that than print. Everyone knew that, and I think you had a lot of people in the print industry that resented people in the broadcast industry. You know that a hell of a lot better than me, just like you just articulated. But I think the point uh, that needs to be made is that there was a distinct difference uh, between guys on television who had something to say based on information and individuals who were just reading a prompter. Because back then you had a lot of that. You still have some of that to a degree where you have people that are host of uh, a sports programming or whatever, but it's not necessarily a debate show or what have you. So they're television friendly. They know how to read a prompter. They know how to articulate themselves very, very well. Uh, but the nuances or the, the intricacies that come along with covering the world of sports is never something they really had to delve into significantly. And the print people resented people in broadcasting because they never tried to tell the difference. I always knew the difference. I knew the difference between a Jim Rome who was doing his radio show across the nation and doing a television show and somebody that was standing on TV for the nightly news reading a prompter. I knew the difference, and I knew what went into it. And so ultimately, you know, your interest you know, elevated because in the newspaper industry, remember, if you're worth anything, you're aspiring to be a columnist, which means you have the license to editorialize and opine and give your opinions, as opposed to just going out there, getting information, and putting it in the newspaper and having nothing to say about it. Television really provoked more opinions and it said it told the world you didn't just have to read a newspaper to see an editorial you could get it on television as well and you were one of the pioneers in that regard and that's why somebody like you has always and should always be appreciated for what you brought to the industry the print industry was too slow on the uptake but ultimately they came to that conclusion as well because they wish they had had that kind of vision you know but at the same time you understood that as somebody in the print media you understood that early on just as you know how it used to be I mean it used to be folks tuned in to get the news they tuned right. in to check the highlights but Stephen as you know that all changed and when it did it was a fundamental shift can you pinpoint when that happened and did you make a conscious decision to pivot along with it well i gotta admit i gotta admit here's how i can pinpoint it for me jim it was very very it's very vivid and very easy to recall it is 2001, believe it or not. 1993, yes, I'm a high school reporter. 1994, I go to the Philadelphia Inquirer, and I cover colleges. I cover Temple, and then Temple basketball and football. And then I'm a backup NBA writer two years later. Before, and then three years later, I'm the NBA writer for the Philadelphia Inquirer covering the Philadelphia 76ers with Allen Iverson and Larry Brown's first year together. 
you know, so I'm doing some stuff with CNN SI at the time, if you remember. They had CNN Sports Illustrated, and they had uh, an NBA show that I was a part of with Vince Cellini and Kevin Lockery and those boys, and then ultimately Fox Sports came calling. But I was still writing for the newspaper, and then it crystallized in my mind at this moment. I'm breaking every story under the sun. Jim Rome has called me. Uh, Bruce Beck called me in New York. There's a whole bunch of people calling me to come on their shows because the NBA lockout from 1999 is going on, and I'm breaking all of these stories. They can't, they're not paying any of the newspaper people that they bring on. So what I did was I said, well, all I'll ask is that you give me a copy of my appearances, VHS, DVD at the time, whatever it was. I said, give me a copy of my appearances. They said, fine. So I make these television appearances, but I'm still writing for the Philadelphia Inquirer. And then the Sixers advance to the NBA Finals with that run where Allen Iverson goes berserk. Him and Vince Carter are going at each other in the semifinals. And then they're going up against Big Dog, Glenn Robinson, Ray Allen, and Sam Cassell in the conference finals against Milwaukee before going to the finals against L.A. And I'm breaking all of these stories. I've got all of these interesting stories throughout the regular season. But come playoff time. The Philadelphia Inquirer puts in its features department, its investigative department, and all of these other people to create stories for advertisers to the newspaper. And the beat writer, which was me, was just shoved to the side. I meant absolutely nothing. And all they wanted was a 15 to 18 inch story about the news of the day involving the Sixers and left all the good stuff to everybody else who hadn't been covering the team all year long. I looked at that. And I said, on top of it all, knowing that radio paid more and television paid more and that I had the skills to do all three, I said, damn that, I'm going to transition from print (laughs) to broadcasting and radio and television because I know how to do that stuff. I know I could do it well. I believe I would be able to do it better than most. Plus, I'd get paid more. And it turned out to be the right decision. That's the right call, right? All right, so now you're 50. And I say this, Stephen, because I got there a few years before you did. Listen, (laughs) 50 50 might be the new 40, but it does not change the fact that we have done this a hell of a long time. And we're still here. And we're still battling. And I don't need to tell you, not only is it a tough business, it has never been tougher. But I would argue that you've never been better or stronger than you are right now. So break this down. What is your key to success? And how do you think you've managed to continue? to kill it through all the changes and evolutions of the sports media landscape? Well, number one, I'm not a phony. Um, You can trust that I mean what I say and I say what I mean. And I'm not a phony that shows up on the airwaves in front of folks uh, just trying to get them to buy whatever I'm selling. I mean what I say, I say what I mean. And if you love, whether you like love or hate Stephen A., uh, you're going to get Stephen A. That's number one. Number two, I try to be as thorough as I possibly can because I never let go of my journalistic roots. And part of that comes with responsibility. It's understanding what the third rails are and doing your best not to cross them. You don't hear about me getting in trouble on Twitter. You don't hear about me getting in trouble because I have this excessive appetite to express myself on social media. You don't see me getting personal with people like that. I just don't, I I just, it's just, there's a principle that comes along with what we're doing and a level of professionalism that I pride myself in, in having and maintaining. Also, I recognize the fact that I, I, I watch as the as the uh, industry transcends into a new era. You see the advent of social media, the kind of impact that has. You understand that there's a skill set that comes along with hosting a radio show. Go ahead and think you can be Jim Rome or Stephen A. Smith if you want to. 
Think that you could just go on the air every day and talk for two or three hours. Think you can pull that off if you want to. Think you can make sure that you're compelling and interesting to hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people who are going to tune in, whether it's directly by listening to your radio show or watching you on television or through the digital age in terms of social media and podcast and all of this other stuff. If you think that you can do that, good luck with it because it's not the easiest thing in the world. But it's also loving what you do and being true to that. I don't have a job. I have a career. I don't do what I do to get paid and elevate and maintain my quality of life. I do what I want to do. And as a result, that helps me maintain and elevate my quality of life. I have a passion. It's not a nine-to-five job. I actually live it. If I'm not working, I'm still watching sports. If I'm not working literally, I'm still paying attention to what's going on. At a moment's notice, I'm prepared to speak on a multitude of issues that permeate the world of sports and beyond because it's my job, but it's also my passion. And I don't get tired. And more importantly, I take into account the fact that we are talking about the world of sports. Here we are looking upon, dissecting, evaluating, and judging the elite athletes this world has ever known. We hold them accountable for their performances. We hold them accountable for how they carry themselves. We hold them accountable for how they look. If you're a basketball or football player, somebody, and you look slovenly and sloppy and out of shape, lacking condition, to do your job to the best of your ability, think about how people are going to judge you for that. How dare us judge somebody else but then ignore our responsibility to be the way that they are. Jim, listen, I'm a, I'm, I'm a proud heterosexual man. I, got no, I, 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 I have nothing against the homosexual community whatsoever, but I am not one of those people. But guess what? I can still look at Jim Rome and say, damn, he's taking pretty damn good care of himself. I think people <laughs> can look at me and say, damn, Stephen A. Smith looks halfway decent. I mean, how do you cover the world of sports and hold people accountable for things you don't hold yourself accountable for. So all of those things, I believe, contribute to my level of success. It might not be the only thing, but I'm sure they play a very significant role in, in the kind of success that I've been fortunate enough to enjoy. Steven, it's the strangest thing. I mean, I feel like I've had this conversation already, and you and I haven't spoken in a long, long time, at least not at this level. And the reason I feel like I've had this conversation before is because I've been having the same conversation in my own head for years and years and years. I think this is part of why you're still dominating at the level that you are, because this is the way we approach it. It's not an 8-5 to five job. It's a great opportunity. It's a great responsibility and something we don't take lightly, and you go after it. Now, that said, that's not to say that you and I have not had some bumps and bruises along the way. As right. an example, I'd make the argument that right now you're the face of that network, but in 2009, ESPN decided not to renew your contract. Yeah. Now, at that time, you could have sat around and moped, and in fact, maybe did for about a day and a half until your late mother, Janet, sat you down. What did she tell you, and then how did your approach and perspective change as a result of that conversation? Well, the first thing she did was ask me, what did I do? What role did I play? Why was it that I, the one, I was the one that ended up suffering like this? What responsibility do I harbor in all of this? Because obviously when you know, they decide not to renew your contract, essentially saying that they can be, they're fine without you and you can be gone, it's a devastating blow to your ego. It's a devastating uh, a blow to your psyche because you're very, very concerned. What's your life going to be like? Where do you go from here? What challenges are you going to be able to face and what have you? And so I had all of those questions. And plus I had feelings of, 
of unfairness permeating through my soul. It was like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm like I'm covering the NBA. I had, quite frankly, I had a radio show and, and what have you. It's one thing to, to not get, you know, to not have a particular uh, show or gig renewed. But I had four different jobs for ESPN. And all of a sudden, they were all gone. But then I looked in the mirror because my mother made me. And she reminded me about the responsibilities that I have, you know, complaining a bit too much, being a bit disgruntled. If you become a headache for your boss, they're going to weigh the pros and cons, and they're going to compare your value to the company, uh, you know, in terms of how much value do you have, how much value do we have with you there, how much value do we have if we were to lose you. And I did not do the greatest job in the world of really recognizing my value. And, and again, the, the Jim Rome, you weren't the only one, but people like you, including yourself directly, were an incredible help to me because one of the things that I've always learned about you, you always knew your value. You were into ownership. You were into taking control of your own brand and understanding what your value and your worth was. All I did was talk. I talked, I went to work, I performed to the best of my ability. I thought I was doing a damn good job. At one time, they thought I was doing a damn good job. But ultimately, I did not have any clue about my worth. And if you don't have any clue about your worth, all you're doing is whistling into the wind. And so when they decide to move in a different direction, because what you think you're worth doesn't measure up to what their numbers show you're worth, then, and you have no outlet, you have no alternative plans, you're stuck. And so to me, that, that dismissal or that non-renewal of my contract ended up being the greatest thing that ever happened to me because it was spearheaded by my mom asking me to look at myself and what I did wrong. And what I recognized that I did wrong is that I wasn't about business. I was about emotion. And my emotions got the better of me because I thought that my work, my performance, and my commitment to excellence should be more than enough, particularly when the hours that I put in, the hard work that I dedicated myself to doing, and as much as I cared and the results that I showed, I thought I was worth more than they thought I was worth at the time. And I did not do my homework well enough to define exactly what my worth was. It was my fault more so than it was theirs. And that was a big, big moment for me because it transitioned my mentality to be more about business and less about emotion. Right. Isn't that it? Business is business. Business is business. I don't care what business you're in. Business is business. You know, I grew up in a family that had a small business. My parents were manufacturers, and I heard that every single night at dinner. Business is business. If you take care of the business, the business will take care of you. So there's a lot of accountability in that. There's a lot of self-awareness in that. And you looked in the mirror. Now, just as you and I came up together, Skip Bayless and I also came up together in yeah. the sense that, Stephen, you might recall, Skip used to host my radio program when I went on vacation. Now, I, I hadn't spoken to him in a long time, but I did see him Super Bowl week a couple of years ago in Houston. And this may shock you, but I saw him in the gym, of course. <laughs> you know, at that time, He's always in the gym. <laughs> he was, man. He was. So at that time, he was really pumped over the move that he had made from ESPN to Fox Sports 1. I'm curious, do you speak to him and do you think that he's still glad that he made that move? We speak once a month. Um, we speak. Uh, we speak at least once a month. We see each other at least once every other month. Um, he's happy in 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 L.A. He misses me. He never he never hesitates to say that. 
the feeling is mutual. I miss him. That's no knock against my brother Shannon Sharp any more than it's a knock against my man Max Kellerman, who are both great guys. Uh, but Skip and I go back many, many years, and you're largely responsible for our relationship because our relationship was cultivated again when we were both contributors to The Last Word on Fox, which was your show. And a lot of times we used to meet right in that office off Pico Boulevard and Avenue of the Stars at Fox Studios, and Skip and I used to see each other there every week. And so that's where our relationship really, really took off. Um, you know, this is the thing. I'm one of those guys that I will always remember those who've done things for me when they didn't have to. I would never have achieved the success that I've achieved on first take if it were not for Skip because it was his show. He had held it down for nine years uh, uh, you know, last four or five years, it became a debate show. It was cold pizza before they transitioned it to the first take. It was Skip Bayless that said to me, I need you to do this for me. I know you don't want to get up early in the morning. I know you don't want to do this kind of show. He said, but I really need you. I, I've done all I can do with this show, and we can't get to the next level unless I have you. Will you do this for me? That is the reason. That, that Stephen A. Smith is on first take. So, yes, Skip is gone, and Skip is at another network, and Skip is doing his thing. But the friendship and the bond and the brotherhood that we have together will never, ever fade because I owe him an incredible debt of gratitude for having the faith in me to literally come to me and say to me, I need you, I can't do this without you, because that's what it would have taken for me to do it, because I didn't want to do it. I only did it for him, and it turned out to be a great, great move for my career, and obviously I have him and, and, and others to thank for, the Jamie Harwitz of the world, Galen Gordons of the world, and others, but it was really, really Skip Bayless who came to me and said, I need you. I can't do this without you. Will you do this for me? And he will always, always be my friend and my brother. You know, Stephen, it's so interesting because I've always done a show. Well, not always, but for the most part, in the entirety of my career, I've kind of hosted the shows myself. It's been a standalone. So far be it for me to say what would make a debate show work or not work. But listening, and I knew this already, but hearing you talk about Skip right now the way you are, there's obviously tremendous affinity there. There's a lot of respect there. I hear other shows with multiple voices, and I've always wondered— how does that shit work if the chemistry and respect are not there? It's not real. It's contrived. It's manufactured. I mean, do you see that? Can you see that when it's there? And does it not work if there's not a genuine affinity and respect among people hosting a show? Well, I think the genuine affinity and respect helps. But I think ultimately it's people living up to the mantra of what the show is supposed to be about. Uh, if you debate, you got to take a position. You can't be somebody that's fearful of being attacked. You can't be somebody that's about being bulletproof. You have to understand that the one thing about a debate show that makes it work is the fact that nobody's bulletproof in the eyes of the viewer. You're supposed to be there to take a position and not care about being attacked. As long as you come from an informed position and you firmly believe what you're saying, what's the problem? If it's informed, and this is what perspective, this is the perspective that you peel from it, and you firmly believe that that's what it's all about, what's the problem? You have every right to feel the way that you feel, and if people want to attack you, that's, so be it. That's really what it comes down to. But if you care too much about what people feel because, you know, you don't have that alligator skin, 
then you ain't made for a debate show, particularly in this day and age with the advent of social media, because there are a multitude of avenues and platforms that people have upon which to attack you. And you have to have that kind of alligator skin. I don't know if it's a great thing or a bad thing. My mama used to get on me about it sometimes, God rest her soul. But she used to sit there and say, why don't you care? Because I really don't care. I don't give a damn what people think as long as I know I do my homework. If you said I was wrong, if you said I was unfair, I was inhumane, I care about that. But if I know that I'm right and I'm coming at you from a point of fact, or an, an educated perspective, and I'm not being inhumane, I'm just telling the truth as I see it, I really don't care. It doesn't phase me. I don't lose sleep over the fact that somebody wanted to attack my perspective and my point of view, because that's the business I signed up for. You signed up for it too, Jim. A lot of us did. It's just that some people can take it, and some people can't. And the people who can't need to get the hell out of the business. And they're not long for it either. That's exactly what we signed up for. You know, Stephen, I've heard you talk about one of the defining moments in your career where you had an epiphany upon receiving some game-changing advice. Who gave you that advice, and what was the advice? Um, the president of the United States, Donald Trump, I was hosting, quite frankly, my television show on ESPN two years ago. I hosted it, 327 shows I did from August of 2005 to January of 2007. And Donald Trump came in as a guest. He was doing The Apprentice and all of that stuff, and he came in. And as we talked, I keep forgetting whether it was on camera or off camera, but he looked me in my face, and we were having this discussion. He said, there's something that I want you to know, and I want you to learn, and don't ever forget this. He said... When you go to a bank and you borrow $3 million and you can't pay it back, you've got a problem. He said, but if you go to a bank and you borrow $300 million and you can't pay it back, we've got a problem. Mm. He said, the moral of the story is the more folks invest in you, the more they must ensure your success. He said, that is the theme of business I don't ever want you to forget, if you come cheap, you're expendable and you're easy to throw away. But if you cost somebody something, you've thus compelled them to step up and do everything they can and exhaust all means and options to ensure your, to ensure your success, to validate their investment in you. That's business. And if you don't adopt that mentality – you will never be successful in any business venture you partake of. And I never forgot that. Hmm. So that resonates with you. Let me ask you this. I mean, the way things are right now, it's almost impossible not – hey, look – when you approach politics and you do what you and I do, they pay us to talk sports. They do not pay us to talk politics. But at the same time, the way the world's going right now, it's almost impossible to steer clear of it. How do you approach this on your program? Well, first of all, uh, you, you, you got to – first of all, we all work for somebody. Even when, you know, some of us own a, a, a piece of our own action, you work for somebody. Anybody who thinks about just themselves instead of the partners or the employer that they work for, it's just selfish. Um, I'm never going to apologize for thinking about ESPN as much, if not more, than just myself. I'm cognizant of that when I choose to 
to express myself because I understand that the ramifications are not going to just come directly towards me. It's going to come towards the company I represent because when you speak and you're associated with an entity, whether it's ESPN, CBS, or anybody else, the belief is is that you're expressing some point of view that's okay with the powers that be. Therefore, they're held culpable for your behavior. You have an obligation to be responsible enough to at least consider that before opening your mouth. Now, once you elect to open your mouth after that, you know, you go ahead and do it. But you have an obligation to at least to consider that. Then after that, try to know what you're talking about and be honest and humane with your perspective. On many, many occasions when we've spoken about the president or whatever the case may be, I will allude to his behavior more so than politics. Why? Because the prism of history will tell us whether the politics are right or wrong or whatever the case may be. Not to mention the fact that I'm no political aficionado. So I need to be careful about opening my mouth about that. But I do know that I could speak about behavior if we don't hesitate to speak about an athlete's behavior. And if we're calling out the behavior of 18, 19, 20, 25, 30, 33-year-old individuals who do nothing to affect our lives but bounce a basketball, catch a touchdown, hit a home run, or, or, or hit a hole in one or something like that, how dare us hold them to such a large level of accountability? But in the same breath, with elected officials, Suddenly, it's none of our concerns. We'll give them a pass. There's something that's hypocritical about that, particularly, particularly when no one hesitates to intertwine sports with the world of politics. We look at athletes all the time. We want them to be role models, or we want them to speak up on various issues. As a pundit, a commentator, a journalist uh, that's highly recognizable, I can't tell you how many times people have come up to me, Stephen A., you got to touch on this. Stephen A., don't let us down. Make sure you touch on this. They did that to me with Trayvon Martin. They did it to me with Eric Gardner. They did it to me uh, with, uh, with, with Castillo uh, you know, in Minnesota. They did all of these things. Why did they do that, Jim? Here's the reason why. Because when you have, when you, particularly when you are a black man, and I've said this on many occasions, white folks in America go to work with a job to do. Black folks come with a responsibility. All I mean by that is that, by and large, white folks go to work, you have a job to do, and you do it. But black folks, because there's such a scarcity of us in positions of influence with a voice, the black community looks at us and says, what you going to do about this? You can't be silent. So they're literally in our face demanding that we speak up about a bevy of issues. You don't always have to, but it is a challenge because you're always getting that challenge posed to you by your own community. And it's something that you have, a light, you have a right to make sure that everyone's aware of. So if you do choose to speak up on these issues, folks understand why you feel compelled to do so. That it's not just coming off of this insatiable appetite just to express yourself. It's because your own community is leaning on you to express yourself. And that's a challenge that we have to deal with every day. You know, I understand that. Well, as much as somebody like myself can understand that, I understand that. I understand that intellectually. I know somebody who does understand that, LeBron, because you look at the way he carries himself both on and off the floor. Before I let you go, Stephen, what do you make, why do you think that LeBron came to L.A. and do you like that decision? I love the decision because I love L.A. Let me just be frank and put it out there on Front Street. I'd rather be in L.A. than Cleveland any day of the week. No disrespect whatsoever. But the sunshine and the palm trees of Southern California is a hell of a lot better than four-degree weather off of Lake Erie. 
if people have a problem with that, get over it, please. I apologize. <laughs> that's, that's number one. Number two, um, I love the fact that I think it's great for the sport of basketball to have the Lakers relevant. It just makes basketball more special. And when you have a star that represents Laker Nation of purple and gold, that makes it even better. Number three, stars, mega stars who've played for the Los Angeles Lakers have never failed to deliver a championship. The only person who did that was Elgin Baylor, and the Lakers won the title the season he retired midway through it. In 73, if I remember correctly. Oh, sorry, 71. So what I'm saying to you is that LeBron going to the Los Angeles Lakers ultimately puts a different kind of microscope on him. Whereas you're going to a place Kobe was at, Shaq, Magic, Worthy, Kareem, Byron Scott, Michael Cooper, the list goes on and on. Art Jerry West and those guys, Wilt Chamberlain. Are you going to be the only megastar? ever to wear purple and gold that failed to deliver a championship to the city of Los Angeles? It'll be interesting to see, and that's an incredible challenge considering how good Boston's going to be this year, how Golden State is still standing in his way, how Houston is coming, Oklahoma City can't be summarily dismissed, et cetera, et cetera. It's going to be very, very interesting. It's great for the game of basketball, particularly since the New York Knicks can't seem to get their act together just yet. I mean, you can do that for days and days and days, and, and I love hearing that. But I got to tell you, man, it, I really enjoy reminiscing about the way it was when you and I would sit in that office in Fox or on the lot there and just talk about the business, talk about the approach. And the reason I bring this up, it's all very different right now. And I know you talk to college kids all the time and they're hungry. And to your point, they're coming for your job. They're coming for my job. We know this because we were the exact same way then. And to a large extent, we still are. Here's my question. Do you tell these kids who are coming out right now that want our jobs, if you have the right focus, if you have the mentality, if you have the grind, if you have the hustle, if you have the heart, you can do or be anything you want to be, or, frankly, is it a fallacy, and on some level, is it just bullshit? I've always told folks, you cannot be whatever you want to be. First thing you have to do is discover what your gift is. Then you can exploit that. I wanted to be an NBA player. I couldn't shine their shoes, so I'm covering the sport. You have people who want to be lawyers, but they're more suited to be a doctor or an accountant or vice versa. You have to discover what your gift is. This notion that you could just wake up and just do whatever you want to do. No, your gift is whatever is innately inside of you. And whatever that gift is, it's your obligation to discover it, the kind of things that come natural to you, the kind, and then learn to love it. Because last time I checked, Jim, I don't know about you. Have you ever met anybody who loves to fail, who loves failure? Not I've never yet. Met them. Not yet. I, I, I've never met them. Now, we love success. Now, listen, they said to me I could write. They said to me that I could talk. Guess what I learned? I learned to love it because I realized it could make money for me. <laughs> now, my preference would have been to play basketball and make hundreds of millions of dollars and be done with it. But damn it, I wasn't good enough. But I found whatever it was that my gift is, and I learned to exploit that. So that's one of the first things that I tell kids. 
discover, work hard at discovering what your gift is, because that ultimately is what you're going to have a passion for, because you're going to recognize that you can be successful at it. And I assure you, you will like success more than you like pursuing something you like, but failing at it. You will learn to dislike that because it will remind you of how inferior you are in that particular line of work that you're pursuing. Outside of that, please recognize that there are no shortcuts. No matter what social media tries to teach you, no matter how you might see people making money off of their reality shows or whatever the case may be, it's short-lived. In the end, what it comes down to is this. When you talk about sustainability, when you're talking about things that's lasting a, a, a long, long time, You've got to have a gift, you've got to have a passion for it, and you've got to have the kind of passion for it where you want to work hard and it doesn't even feel like work because you love what you're doing. That is the difference between a job and a career. A job is doing what you have to do, what you have to do that will help you say, sustain or elevate your quality of life. A career is doing what you want to do, and it just so happens to do those things for you as well. That is the difference between the Jim Romes and Stephen A's and some of the other folks out there. We got a whole bunch of people that are doing stuff because they want to be on TV or they're doing stuff because they want to get paid. But how much of a passion do you truly, truly have? You might achieve some modicum of success doing it by, you know, by getting, getting away with getting, you know, doing stuff by the seat of your pants or whatever the case may be. But when we talk to this levels to everything, and there's levels to get to where you are and where I'm at right now and where we've been blessed to be. You can't do that if you ain't willing to work hard. You, ain't, you don't have the passion. You're not willing to make the sacrifices. You've got no chance of competing against me. And my last thing that I tell the kids is understand something. I am rooting for you. I wish you nothing but the best. But I will not hesitate to annihilate you if you try to go up against me. Stephen A. I don't play that. I'm not your friend. I'm somebody who's friendly and doesn't wish harm upon you nor bad things upon you, but I don't wish your success at the expense of my demise. You try that, I'm going to take you out, and I will not blink along the way, and neither will the Jim Romes of the world or anybody else who cares about what they do. That's how successful people are. Get over it. Or learn to and learn to join the crowd, or don't get over it. Try it and then fall. Listen, I was going to follow up and ask you one more thing, but now I'm not going to. We're going to drop the mic on that, Stephen. Can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Can't tell you how proud I am of you and what you've done. And it's so great to get caught up, man. I just that was great. That was really fun. I wish we had done that sooner, but I am so glad we got caught up. I appreciate man, you very it's much. Always great. It's always great to talk to you. You know, I love you, man. Thanks so much for everything, buddy. Listen, I've got a special message for all of my contractors, builders, and remodelers out there. My people who know the importance of getting a project finished on time, who value professional pricing, who know quality and value when they see it. Well, my pals over at Lumber Liquidators have you covered now. Introducing LL Pro Plus, Lumber Liquidators All-Star Pro Services Team, which is dedicated to fulfilling all your professional flooring needs. LL Pro Plus will help you get products finished on time, provide unsurpassed value and quality, and offer dedicated support to get you what you need when you have to have it. They're pros, taking care of pros, and there is no project which is too big and no project too small. They can help you with anything. So put the flooring experts on your team and let's get started right now. 
Visit your local Lumber Liquidator store or go to LumberLiquidators.com slash ProSales. Once again, LumberLiquidators.com slash ProSales. Go there today. I'll say it again. It feels great to be back, and it feels even better to get back at it with a conversation like that. Hit me up on Twitter with your thoughts on the episode, and make sure you tag Stephen A. in it as well. He's at Stephen A. Smith. Stephen, spelled with a P-H. I'm gearing up for a massive third quarter. I want you all to be a part of it. Subscribe, review, and share the pod. Then get dialed into the daily radio program from noon until 3 Eastern, 9 to noon Pacific, every single day on CBS Sports Radio and CBS Sports Network. If you're a SiriusXM subscriber, the jungle is now in space on Channel 206. Check that out. Make sure you let your friends and family know that the show is everywhere in 2018. And once again, I appreciate you for checking Checking out the podcast and supporting all of our content that we're churning out here. Plenty more where that came from, including episode 47 coming your way next week. Look forward to sharing that with you. Until then, I am out. I will see you all next time.